Welcome to the Entrepreneur Show. I'm your host, Mike Tuell, and today we'll be speaking with Melissa Gonzalez. Melissa is the co-founder and CEO of a really cool company called The Lioness Group. They are reimagining retail and working with all kinds of companies to create retail experiences for the digital age. So without any further introduction, let's get started. Melissa, tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you end up in this space? I just accident, not accident. I mean, I left Wall Street in January 2009. I worked in equity institutional sales and I left to pursue a more creative path. At the time, I was also producing indie films and doing a little bit of acting. So to be honest, I left because I thought I was going to be a famous actress, but I didn't really like auditioning. So. <laughs> so in that time, I made a pilot in the family, he, you know, the son who I filmed it with, his family owned real estate in Midtown Manhattan and said, look, we have space here. We want to do something creative. Do you want to partner with us? So just serendipitous timing. I had the time and I had savings and why not? And so we experimented with our first pop-up in September of 2009. And that brought actually was a client of ours until she kind of grew her footprint last year. So we got paid in clothes for about the first four months, just experimenting and trial and error. And a lot of it started with emerging brands wanting the opportunity for physical. And what we launched with that family in Midtown Manhattan still exists as three revolving storefronts for brands. And then over time, you know, technology continued to shape the consumer and expectations and retail started to shift. And then the kind of brands that started approaching us just got more and more interesting in different ways because they were you know, at different stages of their life cycle. And, and that's kind of how it evolved over the years. That's quite a story. Yeah, I think so. I got both worlds. I wanted to be creative and I'm working with creatives all the time. And then I have business background. What do you say to all the people that think retail is dead? I mean, we look and see so many like large, major established retailers that have all, you know, closed their doors and gone out of business in the last couple of years. I don't think it's dead. I think that it's evolving. I think that real estate front, there was a lot of kind of overbuilding probably in stores that maybe didn't need as many brands that need to need as many stores. So I think you still saw like a cleanup happening in that sense. But at the end of the day, there are still things that you just can't deliver online, right? So certain categories, it's a little bit more inherent than others. Like you're never going to be able to lay on a mattress online, right? So having a store for that still makes sense. The expectations of physical are just different and the footprint is, is different. You don't need as large of a store if you could have you know inventory delivered just in time, right? So it's about creating experience. It's about educating. It's about those aha moments. And it's not necessarily a transactional hub. I think that there are some brands, you know, based on price point or what they're offering that, yeah, maybe they're a little more transactional, right? You're probably not going to like showroom Old Navy, right? You're going there because like, they have great product, great price. And, you know, moms are going to go there, collect a bunch of clothes inexpensively for their kids and walk out. But on the flip side, there's a lot of other, you know, categories and price points where, you know, physical just answers something that online cannot. I totally agree with you on that. Now, we've seen a lot of digital first companies expanding into brick and mortar. Are we still going to see companies start first in brick and mortar and then expanding into digital or is that completely gone? I don't think it's completely gone, but I think a larger trend is the digital and first going into brick and mortar because the possibilities of reaching a larger audience is online, right? That's like it's true. So I think that you'll still see that happen. But the problem is that it's very expensive to compete online. And so at some point, acquiring a customer online becomes even more expensive. So how do you deliver that, that like a loyal relationship? And we know from our work at the Lioness Group, like when our 
and a lot of our clients are digital first that go into brick and mortar. So some examples of that would be Jemmy, Lisa, The Real Real, Madison Reed. Like they all started as digital brands and then they raise, you know, their series B to go into brick and mortar. And the things that they see are like one, the average cart size is one and a half times higher than somebody who just shops online or they repurchase two to three times more frequently than they would if they only found them online or they unlock a higher price point than they would when they only shopped with them online. You know, a lot of these companies start online and it's a lot more interesting to get funded as a digital company, but then customer acquisition becomes a little bit expensive and they kind of tap out a little bit. And so to create these stickier relationships and create mind share in some key markets, then brick and mortar is a good complement to it. Okay. And are you seeing a lot more pop-up shops or are you still seeing like more permanent retail locations? I definitely seen pop-ups grow. And I think overall you've seen the average lease decrease. So, you know, years ago when we first started in 09, the average lease was like 10 to 20 years. Now the average lease is closer to like five years. So there's pop-ups, but then in general, the average lease time is definitely shrinking. And in markets like New York City, you know, the average rent per square foot is also kind of, I think, correcting a little bit. What is the best piece of marketing advice you can give to anyone who plans on setting up a pop-up shop? Yeah, when we start with our customers, I always ask some key questions like, what are we going to deliver in physical that you can't online? One advantage of being a digital company is that you have all this data on the back end of how do people get to your site? Where, what pages are they spending time in your site? You know, where in the funnel do you see them drop off? And we try to work with them to deduct, you know, what does that mean? Like, what are you not answering online that maybe we can bring into the physical store to help them get to checkout? And then also, there's a few things that I always say, never compromise. Think of your deep dive of who's your customer? Where are they? You know, with a pop-up, you have the advantage of going to them. So don't sacrifice location, even if it's free, because time is also money. So where makes sense for them? An example of that will be like in New York City with menswear brands. We've had a few clients that wanted to start in Soho because of the cachet of Soho and that cool zip code. But after they opened doors, their man was in Midtown and he wasn't going down there during lunch break or making it in time for after work. So, you know, really thinking through that is and then also, you know, educate your staffers and your brand ambassadors to be a much higher touch point. You know, customers can research anything they want online. The best thing you want is your consumer to be more educated about what you're selling as a brand or, you know, at a product level than your staff is. So we always work with them on that. It's like, how are we going to really empower these guys to be real storytellers, not just people who can swipe a credit card? Speaking of storytellers, what kind of role do you see social media influencers playing in activating and promoting pop-up events? I think that if you can create a sense of urgency, that's always great. I think identifying the key influencers early on is important. You know, I always tell people you have to develop relationships with these guys like before you need them. So a lot of the times with pop-ups, it's tricky because everything's so last minute. Let them be kind of evangelists from day one. Whenever we do a pop-up, there's always a, like an opening night reception with influencers before doors open. They're always incentivized to post on social so that their followers get to know what's going on. We have them maybe be, depending how long the store is open, you know, creating calendar of events that invite people to meet those influencers in your store. I think beauty segment, beauty industry is really good at this. They have such loyal cult-like followings and to have them involved in the calendar events to the pop-up is usually really successful. Okay. And have you worked with any pop-ups in the food industry? We have. I mean, not necessarily like a supermarket or anything like that, but we've definitely had brands 
brands that sell chocolate or we have had brands from Italy selling pasta and panettone bread. And so, yes, I think the good part about food is it's kind of inherently experiential, right? You have the smell and the taste and all of those worked in, but we encourage people to take customers a level deeper if possible and kind of unlock opportunities around the food that they're selling beyond what they would think. So I guess an example of that would be we did a pop-up for the National Peanut Board. And who doesn't know about peanut butter, right? I mean, we all know what it is. And, and, and either you like it or you're allergic to it. But So it's not like we open the store to be like, here's guess what peanut butter is? Everybody knows that. But it was opening up the mind around the possibilities of peanut butter. So they flew up peanut farmers from Atlanta so people can kind of get a humanized feeling of like, you know, this is how it all gets started. And we, we, they partnered with different peanut butter companies, Skippy's and Peanut Butter and Co. And every morning we gave away complimentary peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And it's insane how excited people get about free peanut butter and jelly. But, um, and so they gave away thousands of sandwiches every morning. But then throughout the day, we had different chefs from the Food Network and other places creating recipes with peanuts and peanut butter, cocktails and appetizers and all these different ways that most people had no idea. Oh, I can I can do that with peanut butter or peanuts and that's great. It like really opened up and developed mind share around that product. Yeah, we're also seeing a lot of pop-ups in the restaurant space or in the form of food halls where they create a simple platform for restaurant entrepreneurs to be able to launch uh, or test their product or test their food concept out pretty quickly. Is that an area you've been involved with at all? Food halls, not so much, but I definitely can say that, like, especially in shopping centers, right? It's been a really important anchor to kind of revive energy and foot traffic. And, it, and you know, it's like it supports the trend of placemaking and building community, you know? So I think that's like an important aspect of retail in general, whether it's food or beauty or whatever, it's creating community. And we are also tied to our phones and all of that. So, you know, it's satisfying that crave of still having a bit of a human connection in a very social way. So in regards to dead malls, like shopping malls all over the country that have pretty much closed down or gone out of business, are you seeing them being repurposed or being brought back to life by creative developers? No, you're already seeing that. I mean, I don't know that I fully have a prediction which will totally be decimated. And But you're seeing a lot of repositioning happening. You're seeing a number of properties that, for example, had like Sears as an anchor, right? And they're buying back those buildings and they're making them into hotels or they're creating a office space, whether it's co-working or not, and really building community around the shopping center so that there's a little bit more of a critical mass there. So it's not just a base, right? Because now if you have office buildings, those people need to go to lunch or they want to go shop at lunch break. Or if you have a hotel, that's like the shopping center becomes an amenity for them. Gyms are a big trend too, because that initiates kind of like frequency of, of traffic. So you are seeing a lot of that rethink happen for sure. Okay. What kind of role do you see AR and VR playing in the retail space, like augmented reality and virtual reality? Yeah, I think you're seeing a lot. I mean, I think AR is something that is a little closer to people understanding like the ROI of it. So you're seeing more investment in it. And I think in certain categories more than others where it answers some of that, you know, those questions, for example, in the furniture industry, it makes a lot of sense if you can virtually put a chair that you're considering in your living room in a picture and seeing how it would look, it brings you a lot closer than just standing in a store staring at a chair in your mind trying to imagine, well, where is that going to fit, right? So beauty, 
furniture. I think there's definitely some categories or AR, but even with clothing and magic mirrors and, and if it knows your body type, letting you change the color of what a top looks like, I think you're seeing a lot of that happening. And then on the flip side, you know, brands are get, then capturing all that data. So they're understanding what people are testing more than they would have otherwise. Virtual reality, I think, has a, lo- a little bit more to go before you're seeing a little bit more kind of mass adoption of it on the retail front. But I think in certain categories like hospitality and travel and the auto industry, it makes a ton of sense that they're investing where you can take a test drive down some, you know, super highway in your new sports car and understand what that velocity feels like and all of that kind of stuff. You know, that's really additive to the experience. And I think that can help somebody make a decision faster than if they didn't have that before. How do you think that will affect the need and use for brick and mortar? I think it changes it. You know, you don't have to have as many cars on the lot, perhaps, if there's the ability in one model and understand the touch and feel of it. And then you have a VR headset that can change the color of the interiors and can open the sunroof and can add on all those extra features. So I think it changes it just the way you kind of see in stores like Bonobos and where it's more of a guide shop and they don't have all the inventory there. But as long as you can answer that touch feel, you know, and it can be shipped to you within a certain reasonable amount of time, I do think that it does impact like what the average footprint of a store is. You don't need 20,000 feet per store anymore. You know, you can do a lot and a quarter of that now. Yeah, we're also seeing a lot of new developers focusing more on micro retail and smaller spaces. Yeah. And you're also seeing developers being smart about, okay, so what does that also mean? Like, how do I become a more valuable destination? And some of them are investing in things like having warehousing nearby, right? So they they make a bet on carving out some industrial space to support those smaller footprint showroom-like stores. And so you're seeing developers think of things like that, or they're investing in, you know, smart lockers being on location and like enabling more of a deeper partnership between the mall operator and the store saying like, if you come to our property, we have all these amenities for you as a brand and a retailer so that you can service your company and you don't have to have necessarily 20,000 square feet, but you get the advantage of we also have local warehousing. We also have lockers for your customers. We have all the kind of extras that they're expecting. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing all this insight. And what are some of your personal habits that contribute to your success? You know, some of the things that I learned from working on a trading desk have been invaluable. So when I worked on a trading desk, your ability to think on your feet, have multiple things come at you at the same time, digest, and also make markets, right? Because you have to know the buyers and sellers. So I think a lot of that has been really valuable to me, being able to kind of take a lot of information at once, put it in its buckets, digest it, be client facing, I guess, because I have a sales background from being on the desk. And yeah, and I think also just being kind of tech savvy and utilizing the apps that I need to kind of keep me organized so I can function in a very efficient way. What are some of your favorite apps you'd like to share with our listeners? I love Basecamp and Dropbox. Basecamp, Dropbox, Slack, I would say I'm on all of those three. Those are all some great apps. Thanks for sharing and thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you. Hey, entrepreneurs, thank you so much for listening, taking the time out of your day to learn from the best. You can check out Melissa's website, lionsgroup.com or find a link in the article on our website, entrepreneur.com. Have a wonderful day.